Welcome to Give and Take. It's a podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with artists, activists, authors, theologians, philosophers, scholars, political pundits, and a host of others about their world, their work, and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a conversation that's free-flowing, entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, oftentimes enlightening and informative, and above all else, deeply human. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. My guest is Alice Vaughn. She is the famous or infamous creator, as she self-describes, of offensive crayons, an adults-only box of crayons for the wildly artistic with a healthy sense of humor, with names like Boner Bill Blue, Miscarriage Maroon, and Privilege. The inappropriately named crayons have been banned from Amazon for insulting children and Caucasians. When she's not gleefully exploiting the general public's constant stream of PC outrage, she often finds herself accidentally going viral. She's the co-host with Yvette D'Entremont of Two Girls, One Mike, which is a podcast that reviews porn and adult films. She is a fascinating person. We had a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it as much as I did. I give you Alice Vaughn. Alice, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Scott. It is an absolute pleasure. You um, do you host a podcast along with your co-host Yvette de Entremont. I'm guessing I'm pronouncing that like it looks French to me, so I want to kind of lean into the Entremont. It is French, French Canadian. I love it. I love it. I, it's funny because when I am talking to my, I'm talking regularly with all my Canadian friends, and they call me and they're like, "We're just checking to see how you're doing in the failed state." <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, it's pretty much it is feel like a failed state right now. But yeah, but so you guys, you gals, you ladies, you persons behind the podcasting um, platform, host a show together called Two Girls One Mic, in which you have guests, but you primarily are one of the sort of golden threads through the whole thing is reviewing porn. Absolutely. So, what's the first porn you ever watched where you were like, oh man, porn is for me? Porn is for me. Wow. Uh, so we're going back to when I was 12 years old or like 11 years old and playing with the bunny ears. And then, you know, just so I could see that static boob. Wow. At that age. I mean, we're all sexually curious around that age. I hear more boys doing that than really? girls. Like I've never heard really stories of young girl, like girls or women. I remember, I mean, I remember like planning sleepovers as a kid trying to figure out who had the best, like who had Cinemax or whatever, so we could play with the thing and see the... So you had to, I mean, you had to be pretty strategic, but that's interesting. So, so you were hooked at that point. I mean, just like anyone else, you know, sex and uh, masturbation is a need. So yeah, I mean, I think it's just culturally, we're getting to a point where it's starting to be, well, it is now acceptable for women to discuss their libidos, you know, grow. There is something to be said about, you know, men thinking about sex more and we could talk about, you know, whether or not men do have overall a higher libido, uh, or women do, or they're about the same. Frankly, that's actually an answer we don't totally know yet. Uh, when you look at the evidence, um, maybe on the bell curve, my, men might have a slight edge, but I mean, women were pretty much there too. It sounds like you're 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 on the on the one end of the curve. You're probably self-identifying as pretty libidinous, as they say. 
I'm the outlier. I'm dragging the curve to one side. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So where did you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey and I'm not proud of that. What town? I love New Jersey. <laughs> Why? Because I, I grew up in New Jersey. I love it. I love New Jersey. Uh, Clifton. Oh, I know Clifton well. All right. So, so you are a millennial. I'm taking it, right? I am. So cable TV and Clifton when you're like... At, a preteen. I'm trying to think about like, what are your options? So, and how, how widespread was internet porn as you're, cause I mean, I feel like that's the point where like, you know, I mean, I remember Howard Stern <laughs> remarking on a show where they were saying that Playboy was not going to do like nude pictures anymore because it's just so passe with the internet. And, and Stern's like, well, maybe they could do like a relief agency. They could drop the magazines into like parts of the global South where they have better internet. So people get, get their porn there, like take the old issues. And so, <laughs> but I mean, so at what point does the internet change your consumption? Because now you don't have to do the rabbit ears and you can search and you can do it privately. I mean, does that change the experience for you? I mean, it changes it for a lot of people. I mean, it just opens up whole world of variety and, uh, options, really. That's what it comes down to. I mean, the problem is when you have, if you're only relying on TV or print-based media, I mean, you basically have your options curated for you and they're limited. I mean, if you think about hypothetically, if I were to go into, I don't know, a 7-Eleven and if I want to buy a nude magazine, chances are they're probably not going to have something that's specifically for me or that would be of my interest. Whereas with the internet, what I would mean, be if you're interested like anything if you, else? If you were walking in and they did have something for your interest, what would it be? What would be the, the high ticket item that you'd be like, thank you. That's exactly me. It's screaming me right at me. Like I'm looking in a mirror. That is a great question. And, um, I don't know. I, I know it when I see it. I'm pretty picky about my porn too. I mean, I'm the type of person where, all right, maybe I've gone through like nine pages of Pornhub and this is a little excessive. Wow. All right. That's, I mean, well, this makes you good at, at what you're doing. Let me ask you this. Are you partnered? Yeah. So my partner, uh, I've been with him for over eight years um, and he didn't choose for me to have a porn cast. So I actually, we never discuss our personal sex lives because Things can be private and we could still talk about sex pornography and the entire culture around it, as well as all the different niches without having to drag them into it. Is he into porn? Of course. You'd have to have him. Okay. So, okay. So he's into porn and you're into porn. I mean, how bounded do you have to be? I mean, that's, it seems like you could kind of mix business and pleasure or no, but you don't talk about it on the podcast you're saying. Yeah, I don't want to okay. talk about what exactly we do, you know, behind closed doors. Sure, 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 because sure, sure. there's again so much we could discuss that I mean our sex lives would be, if anything, too boring to discuss. I'd rather talk I about I don't believe that oh. for a second, Alice. I don't think but I'm not gonna ask you. Don't oh, you just wanna know. <laughs> I'm just well, you know, like wait, I'll just hit stop and we'll do it now. So that's okay. So this is interesting. You got so when you met your partner, like what date into it? Are you like, look, I'm just so into porn. Like I like it. I'm pretty sexual. I mean, what was your first date like? Or when did you, when did you guys start talking about sex and figure out like, okay, we're both pretty sexualized people and we can kind of move in groove here. Um, I'll be frank. I actually, I'm not, uh, so, I mean, we met speed dating, but I'm not going to discuss, you know, when the progression of our relationship happened, because again, I don't want to drag him into this. I okay. All right. Media personality. He didn't. Okay. All right. Fair, fair, fair. I was just thinking timeline, but okay. Let's switch lenses. Let's switch um, kind of gears here. So if you are, okay, when you are looking at 
porn, right? And you're evaluating it. Are there, what kind of rubric are you using? I mean, are you thinking like how much of it is kink? How much of it is quality, right? I mean, how much of it is scripting? Do you think like, I mean, there are people that really like sort of amateur homemade stuff and the authenticity of it. There are people that like produce stuff. I mean, how do you, when you're kind of like coming up with a rubric, like what is that? How do you kind of evaluate what you think is really excellent? pornographic material. So uh, just so you have, uh, as you and your audience have an idea of the context of our show. So we review porn for the plot. And frankly, we do a lot of things that are parody because we bring two different types of, well, generally, yeah, two to three different types of people onto our show. Number one being comedians. And when we bring a comedian on, you know, we want to find something that's familiar to them and we want to have that discussion. So for example, uh, like, Tom Arnold wanted to talk about politics or like, all right, we're going to do who's nailing Palin. And, you know, we got to we utilize the porn as a jumping off point. So we're not necessarily using a rubric. We're basically just saying, all right, let's talk about this. Let's talk about how it relates to what it's based off of uh, and the continuity. Let's talk about the storyline, the writing, the editing. And yeah, we actually care about that. Um, so that's one way. But we also use it as a way to bring on experts. Like, for example, our latest episode, we brought on actually um, one of the co-founders of Real Doll. Uh, you know, they make the sex dolls that ev- that are known everywhere. And we were talking about, all right, uh, so what does it take to manufacture, to clean uh, the types of buyers? Uh, what are st- some different things that you've done with these dolls that uh, we wouldn't know otherwise? And it was a fascinating conversation because we get to have conversations in this industry about topics like everything from AI, security, we talk about privacy, we talk about uh, culture speech, uh, uh, let's say online um, online censorship, which is a big topic nowadays in the culture, uh, different policy decisions, health, uh, immigration policy. And that's the thing. We're talking, although our podcast is built as a porn review podcast, I mean, again, we use it as a jumping off point to have these discussions with performance professionals about these topics because we found no one else is. The fact is that most of the censorship uh, laws right now in Congress deal with pornography and yet nobody (laughs) is talking about them and nobody is evaluating them through a critical lens of what this actually means for the mainstream, such as, you know, persons like, you know, yourself of if hypothetically these laws pass and what the, you know, overarching repercussions are. Who was Nalen Palin? Oh, there were a number of actors who were nail and pale. So there was not, not ex- just one person. It was not an exclusive club or crowd. Yeah, no, there was there were multiple people nail and pale. <laughs> it's interesting because you think about like politics and and how um, sex appeal works, right? And and traditionally, usually a guy has to have some kind of attractiveness, uh, charisma. There's something right. Usually, people that are attracted to men, whether they're males or females usually find something in a good candidate. There's something charm. And, and that's becoming true for women, right? I mean, this is, I remember watching, I mean, as women become more prominent politically, I remember just watching this woman, the governor of North Dakota, when Trump was doing that <laughs> speech. And I thought, wow, I mean, she does have this kind of like char- this charisma. It's a different dynamic because of gender, right? Or the, or the prime minister of New Zealand, who's this striking, competent, capable woman. I wonder like how people... I wonder how many people do have like these kind of political weird fantasies. And when you're like, you have, because honestly, right. Sarah Palin did have a sexual energy to her, right? I mean, she really, her outfits or the way she talked, 
there was kind of, it's interesting because she was at the same time kind of a cultural conservative Christian. So, and yet also pretty centralized. She worked her sensuality in a way that, that was charismatic and charming. Yeah, I mean, you have to be charismatic in order to be a politician. I mean, you don't have to look at the females in politics. Just look at Barack Obama. Right. Or, 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 or Bill Clinton. I mean, I mean, George, uh, George H.W. Bush, I think, is probably the exception to this rule. Like, I know <laughs> Henry one <William> Taft. <laughs> well, and, you, and you look at you look at one termers, Jimmy Carter, uh, George H.W. Bush. Kind of, they had a little less magic than Reagan or Clinton or uh, you know, or Obama or even George George W. Bush was a fit guy. It was kind of a swaggering kind of. Yeah, I remember when Carl John F. Wrote, Kennedy. John, well, Kennedy. Oh my gosh! Of course. I mean, probably not. It didn't look that good though for a second term. No, no, yeah, no. So, so what's interesting to me, as you were talking about, like what the internet has done, right? I think like kinky stuff has become so mainstream, right? Where things like, like you guys have a picture on your uh, podcast, like landing page of a strap on, right? Uh, Whereas I think like... I think so. I don't, I think oh, yeah, we do on the website. Uh, events do. holding a strap on. Yeah. No, I think that's interesting because I think like a lot of women and men would have been sheepish about that sort of stuff not too long ago. And now this is like so mainstream, right? Like th- these kind of. So, and then the porn becomes, right? Like, I mean, you, you become. And so is it. I wonder, is it chicken and egg? I would guess for a lot of people, porn leads to an imaginative horizon where you start to think, oh, I could do this or I could do that. Is that your experience for people? Uh, To an extent. I mean, porn is always, I find, generally ahead of the curb on a number of issues. And again, though, it tends to be ahead and and influencing so much, uh, but no one's talking about it. Uh, So... Yeah, I mean, even if you consider what's come into the mainstream in the last 20 years, I mean, no one was talking about ATM 20 years ago. And if anything, it, you know, at most, it was probably in space. <laughs> it was in Space Nuts and it was an uh, offhand joke. It wasn't an actual scene that was enacted. Uh, and by the way, I just want our listeners to know for if you're uninitiated, <laughs> that it's not automatic teller machine. No, no, no. No. So. Yeah, these things that it's it's interesting because like I, I was listening to oh shoot what what female comedian was it oh shoot was it was she was on Howard Stern she was talking about her sex life and she was like look early on now guys are just like with anal sex she's like when did that just become on the menu like this is just something that's nor but I do think that that that's true for a lot of practices right there are things that like you, that you would have been in a generation ago you, you, you would have been kind of in a deviant subculture or something where now this stuff is just very mainstream, right? I mean, mm-hmm. people, there, there's this sort of thing, which I mean, I, I guess is on one level, right? So liberating, but I mean, do people, does porn like create expectations for people sexually that are like, that are tough because you're watching this and then you're thinking, oh my gosh, this looks amazing. And you know, I mean, uh, it, it's, it's just like sort of the difference between uh, watching the PGA and playing in your weekend golf foursome, right? I mean, these are professionals, right? I mean, how do people, in your experience, how do how do how do you negotiate, or how do people negotiate, or how do you think that the industry shapes normal people's sex lives, or, or I mean, normal is just a setting in the washing machine, right? But I mean, people's sex lives in a way that like are not, you know, in the industry and things like that, and yet trying to be inspired and expressive, like how does that dynamic play out? When people don't have uh, proper sex ed or conversations about what pornography is or that it is 
essentially the equivalent of, you you know, it's a fantasy. That's what it comes down to. You know, you don't watch Deadpool and expect to have a realistic fight scene. You expect uh, the works. You expect imagination. You expect it to be out there. And frankly, porn is very similar. Porn is a fantasy because if anything, it helps influence, you know, what can be done in the bedroom. But yeah, it can have, you know, it can have uh, expectations that are completely and wildly inaccurate the fact that you know you could go into for example uh someone's uh someone's ass without lubrication that is a wild and crazy fantasy don't try this at home should be a label under it uh but yet people do because you know there's a lot of people who will self-educate through pornography and again it you know takes some cues and notes of what you may or may not like and want to explore but it it's not a manual for how to do things i mean the fact is you have my friends who are on set actors, uh, they'll be shooting for anywhere from four to eight hours for a 30 to 45 minute scene. Think about that. <laughs> That's dedication. Yeah. And frankly, you know, you might think, oh, she's having a hard orgasm. No, her leg is in a cramp from being on top for the last 25 minutes. There was a, there was Sarah Silverman was on Howard Stern once and they were, <laughs> she was talking about watching this one porn and i guess it was kind of a like it was a sort of outtake and they were like after this guy climaxes you know releases on her whatever the director goes hey jane i know you weren't feeling well thanks for coming in today and she was like the humanity (laughs) she was a little under the weather and she's you know but she got the job done it's so true and it's so funny because i'll have a a ton of friends who will tell me about stories where they weren't feeling great on set and uh you know everything from uh I'll, i'll never forget one of my first experiences i was having uh dinner at a restaurant with the first porn person I ever talked to. And she was telling me about how she wasn't feeling well. She showed up on set and the woman was basically uh, making in her kitchen uh, a home homemade ejaculate. <laughs> Just she had a recipe for it. So to make uh, her feel better, she uh, put in some uh, uh, lavender essential oils. So it smelled good. <laughs> wow. You know, wow. people care about each other. And, you know, you hear these stories and it's like, you know what? That's just fun and funny My <laughs> because friend, this isn't like the average office. <laughs> right, right. No, it's not the average office. It's like, you know, I, I would guess like porn in the White House, right? Like adult <laughs> film industry in the White House. These are not average offices. Uh, very different. Uh, one, I would say, say has definitely, uh, uh, you know what? I would trust to work with a porn star you know, any day more than any politicians. So. Yeah. Although with the current occupant of the White House, it might be more like an adult film set, but um, not really. Uh, <laughs> I mean, have you looked at Congress lately? I would not yeah. want any of them naked. I'm trying to think of congressmen that would look good naked. Only one is AOC, and she's the youngest. There's got to be though. I mean, there's got to be a lot of people with military yeah. backgrounds, CrossFitters. Like, you're probably going to have people, you know, messaging you saying, oh, well, what about like Matt Gaetz or Rand Paul? Again, don't look, if that's your thing, I'm not going to kink shame you, but Matt not for me. I hear he has really interesting taste in shoes. Like he's a very kind of fashion. So this is, so my friends have like the top Jewish podcast on the internet and they were talking about one time, there are three journalists. If, if my listeners mostly know them, but if, if you're new to the podcast, 
It's called Unorthodox. It's totally worth listening to. It's amazing. But they were talking about how you would make your Goyas your Gentile name. And so my friend Liel says, well, first off, my my name I would generate by pick something a Jew would never buy, like like a domestic uh, uh, sedan, Ford. Then second, pick someplace a Jew would never go on vacation, Mount McKinley. Then my Gentile name is Ford McKinley. So if you were going to like make your stage name, like if you had to go into adult film and you wanted to make a stage name or somebody was like, look, you're an expert, you're a curator of porn, you're a plot critic, you know the industry. If somebody had to come to you for advice for a stage name, what would you give them? I'm pretty sure the old trope is to use your first pet's name and the street you lived on. Mine would be Duffy Spruce, I think. You got it. I think that sounds so un... I don't feel sexy at all with that, though. Duffy Spruce? It sounds like a porn name to me. Duffy Spruce High, featuring Duffy Spruce. Who's nailing Palin? Featuring (laughs) Duffy Spruce. So what do you think these days politically are the biggest things relating to the adult film industry? Because it's an industry that is regulated like every other other industry. I mean, I, I, I mean, I remember hearing about like different counties in California where in one county you have to film with protection and the other you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, like they're adjacent to each other. I mean, what kind of, what are the big issues in the adult film industry? So issues that specifically affect pornography? Yeah, we're wider culture. I mean, I think like, I mean, I think... Ooh, where do I start? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because people probably aren't thinking about it, right? Um, so from what I'm aware of, I believe it's 16, maybe 17 states have declared pornography a public health hazard. So uh, that I'm sure affects how uh, sex education is taught in schools, which is a huge issue nowadays. So that's one I can think of. Then there's the Earn It Act. 17 states. Uh, yeah. I, let me just double check. Uh, let's see. Pornography. Like third states. Yeah, oh, 15 states. Yes. Wow. I'm guessing most of those are red states. Uh, you would guess right. So when you hear that, how do you react to that? It's unfortunate because un- the problem is that, you know, it doesn't stop at the state level. It goes to the federal level. You know, and on the federal level, people want to, you know, uh, apply censorship to pornography. But pornography counts under free speech. And Unfortunately, like last year uh, in December, you had, I want to say there were six senators who said, who wrote a letter to Attorney General Barr as far as uh, repealing Section 230 for pornography sites. And now we're having this conversation more nowadays in the mainstream with the Earned Act uh, about uh, Section 230 being repealed from sites like Facebook and Twitter. And the problem is you have people on both the left and people on both the right who want to repeal it and not understanding what the official consequences of those are. And again, things tend to hit porn first. So we see the consequences of people banning speech being taken away, platforms being taken away, speech being driven underground, people being unsafe. Are you familiar out of curiosity with Sesta Fosta? I, I am so unfamiliar. I couldn't even guess. Like this would be a great <laughs> game show moment. You could be like, is Sesta Fosta a, a, I'd have to phone a friend. So, uh, I, you know who I'd phone if I had to phone a friend? Who? She's not really a friend, but I would phone um, your co host. Uh, I, I, I would phone Yvette de Entremont because I'm sure she would know. 
Well, uh, you would be right to do that. Uh, so the Stop Enabling Sex Traffickers Act and um, allow states and victims to fight online sex trafficking act, SESTA-FOSTA, passed the U.S. House and Senate, I want to say two years ago now. And so federally, essentially what it does is, um, how can I put it this way? If you're advertising sexual services, uh, you can be shut down by the federal government. And I know people, you know, what comes to mind is, for example, like Craigslist um, classifieds. There was a big uh, website called Backpage at the time. Right. Where it got people, shut down too, yeah. So what people weren't aware when they saw the whole Backpage kerfuffle is people would often tout, well, what if they were trafficking underage minors? Um, what people fail to mention, though, is that Backpage actually was working with uh, law enforcement to not only shut down those accounts, but report who were uh, those people who were actually uh, running those accounts to federal agents. Uh, so that way, uh, you know, those traffickers could be shut down. Uh, ultimately, what happened with Backpage, once it was shut down, at least 70 people have died uh, because they've had to move their services underground. Because think of it this way, if you can't vet people via a platform, you're going to have to resort to alternative means, whether that is having a pimp, uh, you know, or a AKA a manager, schedule clients. Uh, so working in tandem with an escort agency or, you know, going through CD means. And since SESTA-FOSTA has happened, uh, you see uh, immediately right after that, Facebook actually, I don't know if you're familiar with um, some of Facebook's censorship rules. Uh, a I mean, a little bit. I don't, feel, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm an expert on it, but I, I mean, I follow the, the news and the gossip. <laughs> uh, so Facebook actually not long after SESTA-FOSTA, uh, in their community standards, they actually, uh, put, uh, they have a whole section on, uh, sexual solicitation and sexual speech. And within that speech, basically you can't, um, so they start with, well, no film, uh, what, what most people would assume on a mainstream platform you can't always put, which is like things like film sexual activities, pornographic activities, strip shows, things like that. Um, however, they also say you can't have uh, certain types of conversations so and sexualized speech. Um, they also say you can't have sexual slang. Now, I don't know about you, but if we're going to talk about sexual slang, isn't Netflix and chill considered sexual slang? I would guess it's 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 at least a sexual innuendo and may might quite easily fit into the category of slang. And you would be right. And actually, since then, a lot of people who've had you know, who are we gonna get are we gonna get shut down right now because we said <laughs> no, no, no. Um, but uh, the challenge is with that. You've had convers there's conversations where, you know, everyone from people who make jokes about sex sexuality to sex educators, uh, people talking about uh, LGBTQ ideas uh, to even uh, people talking about whether or not you should circumcise or not circumcise. Uh, those conversations have been getting shut down for the last two years under this, you know, new sexualized speech law, which is directly correlated with SESTA-FOSTA. <laughs> So Psychology Today cites a study. It was done in 2018 and they did survey 1,036 people. I'm sure there's a margin for error or whatever. But they said that basic results 
showed that 73% of women and 98% of men reported internet porn use in the last six months for a total of 85% of respondents. So the 15% are lying. Cool. So those six senators, all of them (laughs) probably used porn in the last six months. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, I know people... I know they're working off different information. They're working off a, we we have to save the children and whatnot um, type of attitude. And they correlate porn with depravity. Do you know people that don't use porn? Don't look at porn at all? Um, The people who I know that don't watch it visually, they tell me that they're stimulated by uh, audio erotica. I'm wondering, okay, if you find someone that doesn't... Or reading... No, it's pretty closed off to it. I mean, you think about like, okay, if you're like a Southern Baptist, you're trying to tell people about Jesus, or if you're a vegan, you often say, hey, look, just give it this lifestyle is fantastic or CrossFit so amazing. Do you ever find yourself kind of proselytizing for porn? Like you're at a dinner party or cocktail party and somebody's like, so like, ah, oh, I just could never. And you're like, really? You could. I mean, you could start with something, you know, like just, you know, why not wade into you're a Republican? Why not wade into who's nailing Palin? No, um, because people will, you know, f- there's enough content out there on the internet that people could find what appeals to them. They don't need help. They don't exactly. need help. Um, I rather discuss issues like in New York, we have a movement to decriminalize. And unfortunately, people want to put in the Nordic model, which actually is, uh, you know, hurts sex workers or, uh, you know, people want to have discussions on censorship. I rather have those conversations because people in the mainstream are a lot easier to relate to them. And it's so much easier to point out the hypocrisy of a lot of these platforms and how they work when you can say, hey, look, here's something that the average layman would say this content is okay, or here's a reason why this, you know, is going about, which actually makes sense and is safer. But here's why society is, you know, doing this absolutely absurd thing to moral posture. <laughs> so the Nordic model, what's, uh, what is wrong with the Nordic model? Like, is this part of the, the only criminalizing half of the interaction? Is that what this, is that what we're referring to? Yeah. Um, and so a lot of people think that just because something comes out of a Nordic country, it must be good. And, you know, granted, Ikea is okay. And, you know, the Swedish meatballs are great. But after that, I mean, that's kind of where the buck stops. <laughs> um, so what the Nordic model essentially does is exactly what you've said. It criminalizes uh, the purchasing, but it decriminalizes uh, the selling of a service uh, or product. Now. Out of curiosity, you know, just spitballing, what do you think are some of the issues with the Nordic model? If, you know, if you can sell something, but you have no market. Right. Or you criminalize the market. Yeah. I also would think too, that you could, if you were law enforcement, you could set up all sorts of stings for the people that, I mean, I, I, yeah, I could think of a host of, right. Again, you drive down the market, you set up an ability for law enforcement to be vindictive with people that are, okay, I want to take this guy down. I'll just set up a sting operation. And, you know, this is, yeah, I can think of all sorts of problems with it. Yeah. I mean, it begins with the, even the basic premise, people make the assumption that just because you criminalize half of the transaction that there's no longer going to be a market. No, the market shrinks, but the service is still going to be there. So what ends up happening is you have then 
it doesn't have to be porn. It could be weed. It could be alcohol. Um, people, they're still going to be buyers, but now you've criminalized the purchasing of that. So what do you have, what do you end up doing is the sellers now have to be riskier, uh, you have to get the underground market. Like we wouldn't have, if we had legalized drugs, we wouldn't have drug dealers with M16s because you could just call the police if you got robbed. Yeah. Like you wouldn't have to re you wouldn't have to enforce and protect your own supply chain. Exactly. And the problem is when you put the anonymity above uh, your personal safety and security, what you have is then you have sex workers who previously, when it was completely illegal, uh, they would take phone calls and, you know, they would vet their potential clientele. But when it's when they have to prioritize the anonymity, they might end up taking a phone call with a client that they can't trace if hypothetically they become abused. And then if you're a client on the flip side, let's say you do see a sex worker that is suspiciously underage looking and or uh, potentially being abused, you can't report it because then you'd have to admit to a crime. Do you think adult, like what, I mean, I think of every day we're inundated, right? With, COVID-19 stories. And I mean, you're in New York. I mean, New York is actually calming down now. I mean, it's still a serious risk. And I mean, you know, it's good that we're still taking precautions in the Northeast. But I wonder, people are talking about the new normal. And I mean, I, you know, people think it could be two years before we get out of this kind of strange transition we're in, which, I, which seems to me totally believable with, you know, I don't think the vaccine stuff seems a little bit of a pie in the sky kind of thing with what I'm reading about antibodies and things like this. And again, just how in certain parts of the country, Americans are just behaving in ways that are so like indifferent to public health concerns and things. How is that affecting the adult industry? Because if you're, if you're going to be making porn, I'm guessing there's lots of respiratory droplets among other forms of droplets. I mean, if it's a good porn, we're having droplets here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, and actually, <laughs> I'll tell you right now, some of those droplets are faked. Uh, Cetaphil of moisturizer course, course. is a fantastic stunt droplet. <laughs> what kind of moisturizer? Uh, Cetaphil. Oh, nice. Yeah. It, most people cannot tell the difference. Uh, so nice. that's a fun fact. Uh, but yeah, it does definitely affect the industry. So I mean, for example, this year alone, I mean, it's affected in two different ways. So let's talk about the production aspect first of it. Like, uh, let's say I have a production company and, uh, much like any other television or movie studio, I can't run, uh, right now, uh, just so your audience is aware. So, um, prior to COVID-19, a lot of people don't realize how frequently actors are tested. So if you're going to be on set, you have to get tested every two weeks. So you pay out of pocket for that. And then you submit, uh, your, all your tests, uh, test testing data is submitted to uh, the FSC database, the Free Speech Coalition database. So if hypothetically I have a production company, I could see the last time you were tested uh, and whether or not you can you know, come to work, which is really important because we want to maintain, obviously, uh, the safety of all individuals on set. Now, with COVID-19, they did say that they were going to ha- start implementing the COVID test to be part of that. But not only the COVID test, they would have um, not only the actors on set uh, now within the database, but everybody who's going to be on set, which makes sense. Uh, and they've also shortened that timeline dramatically to... Uh, every two days. And to the average person, it's like, whoa, testing every two days. But porn shoots are generally done within a day, maybe two. I mean, it's kind of unheard of for shoots to go on for a week or two. Uh, It just doesn't happen unless it's some sort of big 
production, um, which budgets nowadays that again normally doesn't happen. Uh, so this isn't Lord of the Rings. We're not going to yeah. New Zealand and making Middle Earth here. Although, I mean, I would love to see the equivalent of a Lord of the Rings porn. So please throw money into porn. Do you have like, a Hobbit fetish? <laughs> no, I just have an SFX uh, fetish. I love special effects. <laughs> oh, boy. Um, but yeah, so from the production angle, you have actually now, you know, people testing every uh, two days, potentially. But the challenge is also... There was recently talent testing, which is one of the services that provides testing to all the different, uh, you know, uh, talent within the industry. They recently pulled out, uh, and they're one of the larger players. So there was recently a COVID outbreak on a set because all the results weren't reported into the FSC database, something that I predicted a little while ago. And also one of the big concerns that I, you know, voiced and no one else seemed to have this opinion at the time, but I wouldn't be surprised, which is, yeah, the COVID test that we have, the most reliable one, is 90% accurate. So there's that 10% where you could potentially get an inaccurate result. If hypothetically you have to... Look, realistically, the actors are not testing every two days. That's not happening. They're probably doing like a new... Maybe they'll test, you know, once to two twice a week, uh, you know, depending on how much work they're getting. But the thing is, no one's really shooting right now. So... But you're but still going to have a high error. Isn't this the issue for the whole country, though? When it, when people are talking about the average layman is not testing themselves though, like ten times in a given month, right? And like, and I just think like we don't have enough tests. Oh no! If we only have ninety percent accuracy, we still don't know. Like I still cannot find a definitive answer as to whether or not asymptomatic carriers can be super spreaders. So if I've got the virus in me, I never develop symptoms, but I'm like typhoid Mary. I'm walking around and kind of, you know, experts are debating this. And to me, like, if we don't know that, whether you're an adult film set or Starbucks or anything, like we, because you, it's not whether you're going to work sick, it's whether or not you, you don't feel sick, you have, you didn't get tested, you're running around with it, or you get tested, you're asymptomatic, you get a false negative and you're spreading it everywhere. I mean, with this, I mean, this, this to me is the, it, it, to me is the kind of thing where I know, I'm, I'm trying not to be an alarmist, but I, I just do think like you look at our, our numbers compared to the rest of the world. And we are just, I mean, it's, it's I mean, I feel like abysmal is the only kind of word you can, you can, or well, you could use a lot of other words, but they'd have to be synonyms of abysmal. We have to act at the moment as if we're all Schrodinger's COVID patient, because the fact is no one knows at any given time whether or not they have it. You could be fine Monday through Friday and Saturday you could test positive. And unless you're testing all the time, you don't know. So you have to act as if, which is why it's so important for everybody to wear a mask if they're going to go outside. How are you dealing with this as a New Yorker? Uh I'm doing all right, actually. I have to say that, you know, I'm pretty good with staying indoors. Uh, when I walk my cute little dog, I keep my distance. I put on my mask. And uh, I've actually worked from home for a while. So it hasn't really impacted me too much as far as my sanity. But I know there's a lot of people who just are not used to staying indoors quite often. Um, I have to say, though, New Yorkers have been really good about social distancing. Even when I go to Central Park on the off occasion, um, definitely not now because we're going through a heat wave. But Everybody was really keeping their distance. Uh, and, you know, they were doing everything, you know, that they were told to. And people will give you side eyes if you're not wearing a mask and call you out on it. Which, you know, we have to beat this thing. And it's 
something we, that we just have to muster through. And, you know, I told people, you know, when we first got into this, it's not going to be two weeks lockdown. It's going to be minimum two months. And here we are, lo and behold, that was in February. Here we no, are. I, no, <laughs> I mean, I think, again, we could easily be in some sort of transition period for two years. I mean, it's interesting that you, what you say about New York. What's I, I, interesting is actually, have you looked at um, the new potential vaccine? Um, and I, I find it so funny. It's called like Chad OX1 and COVID 19. <laughs> so a Chad will save us all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, but have you actually looked into the research on that? I've looked into research on, on the vaccines and the stuff I've heard that, that kind of made me pessimistic on it was that there are studies that people are quickly losing their antibodies. Yes. Now that said that that's from people having caught COVID and then, uh, them recovering from it and then catching it again. So it kind of just says a little bit about, you know, the human body's ability to learn. Um, so what's hugely promising actually with this specific vaccine is that, um, in nearly, uh, it, it basically helps the T cells, which is a type of white blood cells, right, to right. coordinate with the immune system. And it's been exceptionally effective. They actually, the study showed 90% of people developed neutralizing antibodies after one dose. Uh, and only 10 people were given two doses uh, to produce uh, the neutralizing antibodies. And they're going uh, into, uh, clin- uh, into human trials in the next six weeks. That's it. Right. Um, and hopefully, I mean, hopefully. Hopefully it does better than again. Like hopefully it, it these antibodies last. I mean that's the that's the thing where I'm like the question about will the antibodies last? You know, which I hope they do. I mean, gosh, it would be amazing. Yeah. Okay, let me. It might just be a thing that you know, much like the flu vaccine, we need a booster shot every, every, yeah, every, yeah, every yeah. year. Um, it might be something where we find over time that uh, you know, much like any vaccine, like tetanitis or. Uh, any of them that, you know, when you become an adult, you know, you need another round every five to 10 years, you know, it is what it is. Let me ask you this. I read last year that the number two Googled porn on Pornhub or YouPorn was cuckold porn. Like this is a huge uh, kind of genre that's increasingly popular. So for people that don't know, maybe like what this is, dear dear listeners, please just... (laughs) So it's like NPR. Dear listeners, sit at, sit down with a cup of tea and you're, you know, in your most comfortable chair. We're, we're going to explain to you, if you're not familiar, what cuckold porn is. And then my guest, Alice, is going to... I want to do my Terry Gross voice. Alice, and why? Why, why is cuckold porn so popular? <laughs> oh, why is cuckold porn so popular? Uh, that is a great question that I haven't completely looked into um you know i I can i can think of a handful of ideas why it might be uh such a popular fantasy i mean generally we we i mean monogamy is kind of uh still you know the predominant idea of you know in most of society so the first being, you know, that I could think of is changing moral values. It's taboo. Yeah, yeah, it's taboo. There's more tolerance for lifestyles that don't fit the traditional exclusive marriage between, you know, one man, one woman, uh, or, you know, same sex, tra- you know, transgender, uh, swing, poly, cuckolding, you know, uh, just becomes something where um, it, it's interesting. This is different. This is new. So I could see it as 
you know, that being one factor. Um, I could also see that, you know, while men have their sexual heights at age of 18, women have it in their late thirties. Um, you know, I could see some married women miss the sexual attention of their husbands, um, and might be interested, interested in exploring alternative options. Um, and I don't know. I mean, I, I wish I could provide more. Do you think there's some of it too? Like yeah. female dominance is more like for the man to play a submissive role. Like you think of a show like billions, right? Where, you know, like we're, I mean, the sort of female dominant male submissive BDSM dynamic is so much more mainstream now that maybe there's a kind of, uh, the female seems more dominant or something or. I mean, there's this idea that, you know, you're either completely submissive or you're completely dominant, which is a wrong way to think about BDSM. I mean, frankly, all BDSM is, is just, you know, kind of a power play between two individuals and you could exchange that power during sex. You know, you could be on top one, uh, you know, one position, you could be on the bottom the next. So well, it's a spectrum. Yeah, right? There are people definitely there on of course. the continuum that are less fluid than others, right? There's people that are probably super fluid and people that are a little more comfortable on one side of the spectrum or, or, or the other. True. But a lot of people have this very narrow idea of what BDSM is and assume it just, you know, involves like whips and chains. And, you know, we discuss on our show that, yeah, clown porn, you know, laughing and dressing up with makeup that also fits into BDSM. <laughs> clown porn is so scary. Um, I just got, you're terrifying. I watched a live stream with a clown the other day and he had like a, he was a slightly sinister clown and I watched it for 30 seconds and I'm a grown man. I'm in the comfort of my own home and I was terrified. I was like, Oh my gosh. So clowns, I, I that's something I don't think I would really struggle with because clowns terrify me. <laughs> it's not for everyone. Um, but yeah, uh, BDSM. Where were we going with that? Yeah, I was just trying to figure out the power dynamics and cuckolding, and 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 also again, BDSM is becoming more ra- mainstream. And I think you're right, people. It is. It is. You know, with the especially with kind of like advent of websites like FetLife and things like this, where people are kind of on anonymous. If, if our listeners don't know what this is, I mean, it's, it's you can Google it. It's 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 been in a lot of mainstream media. It's as I understand, it, it's basically kind of a a, a kind of and a kinky kind of version of Facebook where you can, and also you can be anonymous. I mean, or you can be more self-disclosing and it's a place where it's not just a dating site or something. It's a real social networking kind of site where people do meetups and interest groups and post and connect. And, you know, so it's interesting in the advent of things like that. And again, this is what I wonder. It's like with porn, is it chicken and the egg? Like how much does like, the availability of porn through the internet broaden people's sexual palette, right? But then how much because of that broadening palette and you have things like FetLife and and meetups and things like this is then that kind of give inspiration to porn because you're like, oh my gosh, now we've got so many more consumers, right? Like we've got a bigger, like we got a bigger kind of group of connoisseurs than maybe we would have had before. Well, definitely nowadays, analytics play a lot into the type of pornography that's generated. But the cool thing about, you know, the internet and vastness and how many people are involved nowadays. I mean, you could find anything for anyone and you're right. It kind of is a chicken and the egg. Is it, you know, it's driven through initially through these uh, meetups and individuals, or is it from the a top down approach? And I would say it's a combination of the two. I feel like the social circles, um, 
the bottom up, um, you know, are very specific to niches and certain communities. So I could see how that influences, you know, very certain production companies. But I mean, if you look at, for example, the major sites like Pornhub, um, they're operating generally on clicks. And that's why, uh, unfortunately, step porn is such a big genre, uh, kind of by an accident. Uh, So that kind of happened. So just, you know, for your audience so is aware, there's there's a lot of step pornography of step brothers, step sisters, step parents. This, is, this was Howard Stern's favorite genre, that stepmom porn and babysitter porn. Now, frankly, a lot of I think it goes back to um, Taboo. Uh, so it was a very popular film that came out in the 80s. Um, there was kind of a resurgence of it in the early octs. And what I think happened was that a a handful of directors basically saw, oh, let's borrow from this classic, shoot it, and let's see how the public likes it. And the public loved it. And it kind of became the equivalent of going to the supermarket and buying cereal. And they only have one main cereal. And people keep buying that one cereal. So they just continue stocking the shelves with more of that cereal. And we're kind of in a loop right now of people buying all that cereal because they see it as a main option. So they keep producing it. We're kind of there with step porn. If, do you do you ever think about like, gosh, what if I could produce a porn, what would I be producing? Like, what would I... Oh man! Uh, is there a favorite film like you would? You were like that you would because you guys love doing plot critique. I mean, is there something you would? Who? Uh, so I definitely would probably. I mean, I love comedy. I love like what the studio Wood Rocket is doing when it comes to creating hysterical content uh, and stuff that's parody wise, just fun to watch. Um, and you have the whole element of like the fan the fans getting involved and critiquing and being in on the jokes so i do love that but i think if uh you know as far as original content um you know there's definitely i i think to myself of um gosh uh like uh who did the movie drive uh what um, I know like Brie Mills did a full storyline about growing up in her adolescence and experimenting and that was winner of the year but who did drive drive porn director this is, this is not me. really this is not my field you're gonna have to google i mean this is really i can i mean i could google Kaden cross yeah so Kaden cross for example she's someone who she focuses on plot lines um brie mills focuses on plot lines and i think what we're slowly also seeing is people developing actual films and they just happen to have sex I think I, when you're watching porn, right, for your show, I mean, are you kind of like, because my guess is, you know, there's there's different kinds of, I mean, you could be watching porn for autoerotic purposes or erotic inspiration purposes. So then are you like, when you're like watching stuff for the show, are you like, you have a notebook out? Are you pretty clinical? I mean, you're like, okay, okay, let's say, I mean, how is it? Is there a different kind of posture when you're watching porn for the show and for conversations of the show than when you're just kind of like, all right, here we go. I'm warming up and I got to get release. Yeah, they're two completely different sections of my brain, I would say. Uh, so when I'm evaluating something for a show, I'm generally looking again at characters, continuity. I care about sound quality. I care about what's the filmography look like. Um, how much, you know, what was the budget? Uh, who's acting in this? Uh, are they any good? 
Uh, and, you know, I like to answer all these questions. So yeah, it's a little bit more clinical for me. Um, when I'm sitting down and reviewing something, um, you know, this week, we're going to be reviewing a Jurassic Park porn parody, as well as a Buffy porn parody. Um, and I'll be taking notes on those, you know, what's what elements are similar uh, to the actual film? Uh, or does it go just way left field? Uh, whereas if you know, if I'm interested in just something personally, again, that's I I'm looking at it through a completely different lens. Do you think there's any chance someone has sex with a dinosaur in that Jurassic thing? No, and I'm oh, actually yes, yes. It was a it was a porn star dinosaur. It was it, they asked the scientists were asking whether or not they could could fuck a dinosaur that they didn't think if they should fuck a dinosaur. It's very much like a combination of if you took Westworld uh, and and instead of doing like a cowboy robot thing, you did like visitors can come to the island to to bone uh, a porn star dinosaur hybrid. But that, they're not good dinosaurs. I'm sorry. <laughs> that stretches the limits of my erotic imagination. It really... I, I mean... That really does. I mean, that's a, I mean, that is a fascinating, I, I my mind, I am not usually speechless. <laughs> I am officially speechless because vampires are kind of, you kind of, vampires are still kind of sexy. Zombies aren't sexy. Vampires kind of are sexy. So you have not seen the Walking Dead porn parody. There are a lot I have of zombies, not. a lot of zombies. I, it's so not sexy. The zombies aren't sexy. I think the funniest part, though, of that film was when I was watching it. Um, so apparently the premise in the Walking Dead porn parody is that you can kill the zombies with ejaculate. And uh, <laughs> that is fantastic. But the best part, though, was so there is this one scene where this uh, male character is having a threesome with two other female zombies. And one of them, one of which she keeps groaning like a zombie and I just, I couldn't take my eyes off of it because the the ungodly sounds she was making were definitely not of pleasure, nor of pain. It was like, oh, you're really going for the undead, uh, you know, act here. <laughs> She's trying to work up to being an a to zombie in the actual show. She's like, look, maybe the odds are, you know, 96% of guys are watching porn. Somebody that's uh, working on the show. Maybe this is my way up. I mean, it's possible. Anything can happen. Uh, one of our friends and former guests uh, actually used to... Uh, our friend Anna, she used to actually do sketches and she used to strip. And one day, uh, the creators of... Actually, there were no, not creators. There were animators from King of the Hill that came to the strip club. And, you know, her coworkers were like, you guys should see, you know, our, you know, Anna's work. And she eventually became a Simpsons animator. Is this your full-time gig, the podcast? No, it's not. Okay. So you have a day job. Uh, my day job is selling offensive crayons. Oh, I've been on your site. Yeah. I almost bought the ball gag mask I was <laughs> on the website. So for our listeners, I'll link to it in the show notes. But so you sell these offensive crayons, which are fantastic. And you are now selling kind of adult masks. And there's a mask where it looks like you have a ball gag on, which I think I'm going to buy. Uh, just because it's so fantastic. I just want to see the reactions. I mean, I guaranteed people will stay six feet away. Okay. So that, okay. So that's interesting because if you were a IT engineer or at a law firm, would you think you'd feel different about the podcast because you're you're selling stuff that's kind of like off color in fun ways you're doing ball gag masks do you think like so i wonder like when you go to like a party and there are people that are more vanilla ish at least in their posture 
do you when when you when they talk with you are you self-conscious at all or is your partner self-conscious do you get like okay yeah i do this kind of like stuff that for some people that are kind of more traditional or vanilla or mainstream this is kind of maybe off color and weird and i mean how do you negotiate those social interactions um i used to work in the tech sector so i used to be fairly mainstream but shockingly selling crayons somehow became more profitable um, which is how it ended up being my day job. As far as social interactions go, you know, I'm not self-conscious about it at all. I like to think I'm living my best life and an interesting life. Um, and I love it. I mean, the fact that is you won't hear every day, hey, this is this crazy thing that I've done for a li- that I do for a living that has gotten me banned from everywhere from, you know, Chinese patents to Amazon to Instagram and allows me to have this platform. You were banned from Instagram? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Um, Advertising. I was also banned. uh, My product was banned from Twitter advertising, Reddit advertising, Facebook advertising. I've been banned multiple times off the Facebook platform, um, as well as like, I can't sell anything on Amazon. Um, My products uh, and I am banned from Constant Contact, Send in Blue, and then the Chinese government has issued some cease and desist letters. So that's been fun. That seems really challenging if you can't sell via Amazon because Amazon's a huge platform. So are you doing all this stuff? You have an independent shipper and all that stuff? Yeah, I have a fulfillment center based in California. Uh, they've been great to me. Uh, Shipmunk, I've been using them for two years. I can't speak more highly about them. Um, and yeah, but I do everything from the sourcing, manufacturing, prototyping, um, you know, creation, product design. I've had some help. I've hired some fantastic contractors from time to time. Like I'll, you know, I have uh, one of my guest co-hosts, Natalia Reagan. You know, she's helped me on like some ads I've done and uh, some videos work uh, and scripting and editing. But a lot of times, like 90% of what you see is just, you know, me messing around and, you know, creating stuff. Alice, you do seem like you're living your best life. And I, I think uh, I, I, w- I want to say like you've given me a different lens on adult films and in the porn industry. And I think that you're a wonderful conversationalist. So I want to encourage all my listeners to um, subscribe to your podcast and uh, may your tribe increase. Thanks so much for the work you're doing and for talking with me about it. Thank you so much. And yeah, so for your listeners who want to check out the show, I'm sure you'll have it in the show notes, but uh, twogirlswithmike.com or just type in twogirlswithmike, um, spell it out. Uh, we are the ones with the white background uh, microphone and the strap on. If you see the strap on, <laughs> on the website, the two, on the website, you 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 got to the right place. <laughs> yeah, definitely. And uh, you guys can also individually follow me uh, at Rational Blonde uh, for all the science COVID news. My co-host, uh, she's a science communicator, so uh, she is at the Cybabe. I don't know why I'm plugging her, but she's great for COVID info. <laughs> I love um, it. Yeah. And uh, the podcast, we're on all social media platforms at TGOM Podcast. Uh, but yeah, check us out. Uh, you know, we have something for everyone. And, you know, some sh- episodes are just purely informational and some we just laugh our butts off. <laughs> I love it. You can either be something for everyone or everything for someone or maybe be something in between. So... Hopefully you guys are something in between. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. If you like what you've heard here, please do a few things for me. 
go share about this episode in iTunes. Write a review. Give it a rating. Share the love and goodness. Or go on social media. Share a link to the episode on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. Please pass along the love and goodness if you've experienced it here. Thanks again. Thanks again for listening to this episode of Give and Take. And until next time, friends, fare thee well.